gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news about the person and the work of Christ is something that not only saves us, it continually saves us and sanctifies us and it infiltrates our life. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 to 16. He who is the blessed, the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. This is who our God is. And this verse, we're just going to let it hang on the screens for a little bit of time because we want to meditate on the fact of who our God is because we must understand that imperatives flow from indicatives. Imperatives flow from indicatives. Indicatives are factual statements of what are true. Imperatives are commands. The commands of Scripture to be and to do flow from indicatives, from the factual reality of who God is. Imperatives devoid of indicatives. Commands without the why or the who or the power of the understanding. Be kind. Why? Be good. How? Do all of these things. Go to the nations. Why? If you do not anchor the imperatives in the realities, the indicatives of who God is, then they are imperatives that are dependent only upon our own energies. Scripture is very clear. This is who God is. Therefore, even the Great Commission in Matthew 28, indicative, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me imperative. Go therefore and make disciples of all peoples. What is the great indicative, the great central theme that unites all of Scripture? What connects the Bible together? When you read through Scripture, what is that big picture that you should keep in mind? And I want to give the central theme of Scripture this morning. Now, that might sound like a, quite a broad statement, but I believe I'm accurate in this. The central theme of Scripture that we began to touch on last week is the glory of God. The glory of God. Now you might ask and say, but wait, I thought Jesus was the theme of Scripture. Bear with me. A biblical theology of doxology, glory, are the foundations that underlie and underpin everything in Scripture. It's what unites everything. It's critical to understanding the Bible rightly. It's not the only theme in Scripture. The glory of God is not the only theme in Scripture, but it is the theme through which all the other themes flow from. Themes like kingdom, covenant, promise, fulfillment. These themes flow from God's desire to make His glory known. What does the Bible say about His glory? I want to give you seven foundational statements, and this is just introduction. If you're like, seven statements for the introduction, we'll be here forever. No. But these are seven foundational statements that help to draw in this central theme of Scripture. And here's the first indicative, the first statement that helps to capture this glory of God. Number one, God is glorious. Number one, God is glorious. These are foundational 
to the commands that God has called us to. But the first thing you must understand is just simply the fact that God is glorious. And Scripture goes out of its way to again and again to describe the indescribable, to talk about who our God is, that He is the sum of all perfections. He is holy, undimmed, self-existent, alone in supremacy. All of the heavens declare His glory. Psalm 113, 3 through 5, as Cyrie just read, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? And at that, we should just be able to say amen and fall down and worship. Because that's the point of Scripture. God is glorious. He is alone in his power and holiness. There is no one like him. God is glorious. Number two, God is zealous for his glory. God is zealous for his glory. His nature suffers no rival. His glory is the greatest good and it is the most perfect perfection. It is his motivation. Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. He is a holy God. And God's zeal for his glory actually affirms its worth. If God was not zealous for his glory, we would say, is it really that wonderful? Now again, what is glory? Glory is the sum of the perfections of everything that is God the perfections of his knowledge, the perfections of his being, the perfections of his character, the perfections of his power, the perfections of his, the inter-Trinitarian relationship, everything that is perfect. He is the sum of all those perfections. He is holy, holy, holy. His glory is who he is. God is glorious and he is zealous for his glory. So that as you read through the Old Testament especially, look how many purpose statements are attached to God's actions where God says, I'm doing this for my name's sake, so that the world may know, so that Egypt may know, so that the Assyrians and the Babylonians may know, so that Nebuchadnezzar, when he went into that fit of insanity and he became sane again and he lifted up his eyes to heaven, he said, truly, there's no other God like Yahweh. He's zealous to be recognized as the only God because he is the only God. So God is glorious. God is zealous for his glory. Number three, God wants to bless the nations with his glory. God wants to bless the nations, the peoples of the earth, with his glory. And this third point underpins his love. Because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, coexistent for all of eternity, need no one, need to give nothing of themselves. They are totally a self-contained and perfectly happy Trinitarian entity, God. So the fact that God just simply wants to bless people and bless the nations, it is driven by his heart of love that he wants to share himself and bless others and to invite them in to share in his glory. In Genesis 12, verse 2, he tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you'll be a blessing to the nations. And the means of 
blessing the nations with his glory comes a major theme of the Old Testament, covenants. That covenants, promises, these treaties that God enacted are the means by which he wants to channel his glory in his zeal for his glory to bless people with his glory in a sinful world. And the only way that he can bless people with his glory is through covenant. This is how you come and approach and enter my presence, the temple and the tabernacle, the sacrifices, and then the New Testament through Jesus Christ. Number four, maybe you asked and you said, what about Jesus? I thought Jesus was the theme of Scripture. And the answer is to say that the glory of God is the theme of Scripture and to say Jesus is the theme of Scripture are synonymous. So number one, God is glorious. Number two, God is zealous for his glory. Number three, God wants to bless the nations with his glory. Number four, God has revealed his glory in the Son, Jesus. Let me, let me tease this out just a little bit. If we were to say, where do you see the glory of God displayed? Many of people would rightfully turn to the heavens and say, look at the stars, look at the cosmos, look at creation itself, because Scripture says that these things display the glory of God, but it does not say they are the glory of God. They sing the glory of God, but they are not God. What is the glory of God? What is the truest representation? If you want to see the glory of God, you want to see God himself, then you look at the person, Jesus. This is absolutely stunning. Then in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 2 Corinthians 4.6, through Christ we have the knowledge of the glory of God. Listen to this, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That the face of Jesus Christ, Jesus the person, is the manifestation and the incarnation of the glory of God in something that we can see and touch. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Oh, the heavens sing his handiwork. But if you want to see the glory of God, look at Jesus. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know who, quote unquote, the man behind the curtain is, which how a lot of people treat God, I wonder what he's really like, look no further than Jesus. He is the manifest glory of God. So to be passionate about the glory of God is to be passionate about Jesus for he is the fulfillment of promises and he is what the glory of God looks like. Number five, God has chosen a people to bear his glory to the nations 
In the Old Testament, it was Israel bearing the glory to the nations, representing who God was, foretasting that one day when the glory of God would return. And then in the New Testament, we see that God has chosen his church to bear the glory of God, to bear the name of Jesus. We see another major theme, kingdom through covenant that God is building a people through his covenant promises, through the Old Testament Israel to bear the glory and to build a people, through the promises of the Old Testament covenant, and then in the New Testament, that covenant resealed and fulfilled at the cross where the glory of God manifest is going to die in order to forge a new covenant and forge a new people, but with the same mission, to bear his glory to the nations. But in the Old Testament, it was a partial image of Yahweh. But in the New Testament, the glory that we bear, church, is the glory of Jesus Christ. We know his name. We know his life. We know his actions. We know his character. And we know that he's coming again. We bear not an ambiguous glory, but a glory in person. Number six, God is most glorified in the redemption of peoples. There's many ways in which God is glorified. He's glorified by the flower that blooms and dies on the backside of a majestic mountain that no one sees but him and him alone. He's glorified in that. He's glorified in the stars and the heavens that are beyond the reaches of our telescopes and radio electronic emitters that see the, the unseen universe in ways that we can't perceive with our eyes. He is glorified in all those things. But there is nothing by which God is glorified more practically than in the redemption of peoples and those who are created anew in the image of Christ so that they can bear the image of Christ and bear the glory of God. So, the redeeming of peoples is a delight, a joy, so that creation we see, even at the very beginning of time, creation was a people, mankind, in the image of God, to bear his glory. The fall came, the image is corrupted. But in Christ, in the work of Christ, the glory of God in the flesh, the image of God is recaptured. Don't you know that you are a new creation? A new creation created anew to bear the image and the glory of God. Number seven, last foundational point. God wants his people to love and live for his glory even as he loves and lives for his glory. God wants his people to love and live for his glory, even as he loves and lives for his glory. God wants to share himself with those who share in the righteousness of the Son. And love for his glory is seen in our worship and that we praise who he is and what he has done. And then living for his glory is seen in our obedience. Your obedience does not save you. But your obedience 
opens up the conduit of your life through which the Holy Spirit can channel the glory of God in Christ so the nations might know truly this Jesus is God. So seven major foundations that really underlie the totality of Scripture has to do with the glory of God. Number one, God is glorious. Number two, God is zealous for his glory. Number three, God wants to bless the nations with his glory, and in that we see his love. Number four, God has revealed his glory in the Son. There is no other. Number five, in his grace, God has chosen the people to bear his glory to the nations. Number six, God is most glorified in the redemption of peoples. And number seven, he wants you to love and live for his glory even as he loves and lives for his glory. I do believe that these foundations underpin as you read through scripture. Having these things in mind helps us to draw together the narrative of scripture. Okay, with that foundation in place, What does all of this glory theology mean? What does it mean? In some ways, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 to 6 sums it all up. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, covenant work of Christ, made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever Amen. God, through covenant work of the Son in his blood, makes us a people, priests, the reconciliatory ministry that he has given us for the purpose of what? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So, two practical walkaways with this is number one, the Christian identity are to be glory bearers. We are to be glory bearers. That's our identity. It's our birthright. It's not just something we do because someone preached a message about get out there and share Christ because that's an imperative without an indicative. The imperative get out there and share Christ or represent him or go to the nations is built on the fact because God is zealous for his glory and if you are in Christ, the indicative reality is that that is your birthright to be a glory bearer. It's not something you do. It's something who you are. So your Christian identity is that of being a glory bearer. Missions traditionally as we understand it or as we call it here at Heritage, being a goer, Going, goers, is glory bearing to a foreign context. Missions, glory bearing to a foreign context. It is the back breaking, unsettling, intentional, sacrificial effort to cross cultural and national boundaries to bear the light of God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ to places where the perfections of God are unsung. That is our goal. That is our desire. And so when we read the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus came unto them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Indicative, this is who I am. Go, therefore, and make disciples. What is one of, what, one of the introductory pillars I gave you? That God is redeemed through, God is glorified through the redemption of peoples. So making disciples is an identifying mark of people redeemed to be glory bearers. So go and make disciples, those who are going to bear the glory of God. Baptizing them, 
What is baptism? Baptism is identifying with this particular glorious God. It's not just some ambiguous notion of God. But it is identification in the name of God, in the person of Jesus Christ, and becoming a part of a people. It's the identifying mark of being a part of the people. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them what? How to love and live out the glory of God. The glory of God is the underpinning for all of the imperatives that are given. And the need is great. I showed some maps last week. Let's take a look at them again. Let's go to this first map. Where is it? Right there. Okay. 1040 window. 2.9 billion people unreached. 3.4 billion is the current number. This is map five years old. That's how much population explosion and consolidation has increased. That box that you see there, the 1040 window, 10 degree latitude, 40 degree latitude, you see the concentration of unreached peoples, peoples with no access to Jesus Christ. Let's go to this next slide. This is the location, these red dots, of unreached people groups, people with very minimal Christian presence, no church to speak of, very few efforts to evangelize. 7,000 out of the 17,000 people groups worldwide. And look at that concentration. Where? Across Sub-Saharan, North Africa, Middle East, across Asia, and to South Asia. Why are we commissioning people to these places? Because there's the need, brothers and sisters. There's the need. And as we look at the need, we recognize that these are also the strongholds of world religions like Islam, Buddhism. You can see them on this next slide where you can see the concentration again right there in that 1040 window. Next slide. Let's see now the concentration of where missionaries are and are not. You can see where they are, but again across that 1040, they are not there. Why? Because like we talked about last week, it's a hard place to go. It requires a lot of self-sacrifice. And the persecution here is enormous. See the next slide here with the persecution index. And again, right across the 1040 window, you see why the gospel has not penetrated this territory. Now let's bring it down to something a little bit more direct. See this next slide and see where Bangladesh is. Bangladesh nestled between South Asia and India. That little country is a country slightly bigger than the state of Virginia. Okay? But for context... If you take the entire population of the United States east of the Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, North, South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Delaware, New York, Boston, all of these states and cities, Chicago, Minneapolis, not Minneapolis, that's the other side, sorry. Sorry to those of you who are Midwest, don't know my geography. Going over to the East Coast, east of the Mississippi, that entire population block of approximately 170 million people put all of that in Bangladesh. That's the population density. 167 million people who are virtually unreached with the gospel. Some of the most unreached peoples in the world are right there. If you go to Morocco, the Berber peoples in the Atlas Mountains, unreached. Turkey, tens of millions of Turks 
who do not know Christ. And you know that that's where the church began. Modern day Turkey, if you look at your New Testament and look at Ephesus, Colossae, and all of these ancient cities that are mentioned, they're in Turkey. The gospel has been shut out. But by God's grace, we believe the gospel can reclaim that dark territory. The need, brothers and sisters, is great. And why do we go? 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16. Because he is the blessed and only sovereign. He is the one who is worthy. His means of taking his glory are you, me, glory bearers, his church, a people set apart for his glory to bear his glory. We believe that the church is the center of his instrumentality to make his glory known. And so as we go to the nations, we go as a church with a goal to plant the church so that churches may plant other churches and that they might reproduce the glory of God and that one day, maybe, by God's grace, there's going to be a Bengali church that is running across Asia shouting that Jesus Christ is the manifest glory of God and he's worthy of all praise. So how can we be a church unleashed for the glory of God? I want to give you three D's in closing. Three D's. How can we be a church unleashed for the glory of God? Number one is doxology. Doxology. A church that is unleashed for the glory of God must believe and love the glory of God. And that means talking about who he is, recognizing. It's interesting that as Paul is writing in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and his heart is for the church to be healthy and to bear the name of God. How many times the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy comes back to doxology? He does it in chapter 1. He does it in chapter 3, where he talks about the church being truly the pillar and buttress of the truth, bought with the blood of God. And he talks about who Christ is. He's brought up in worship. And then in 1 Timothy 6, 15 to 16, this passage that we read, the reason he broke out into doxology is that he's telling Timothy, fight the good fight. Why should we fight the good fight? Because this is who our God is. This is who he is. And his glory is worth it. The heartbeat of the church is a zeal for being and doing because God is glorious and the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. So we sing his name. We preach his name. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 says, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. All glory be to him. But what drives you to go? What drives you to go? I find there's many reasons why Christians go one, maybe is need-based going. You see the numbers, the faces, the people, the orphans, it tugs on your heartstrings. Now, having compassion is a godly thing. But here's the problem. If you are driven only by need and numbers, what happens when your zeal for that runs dry? What happens when the need changes? Do you go just simply because of zeal? 
belief that going and doing somehow makes you a better Christian in the sense that you are closer to God. There is this sense sometimes within the church that I'm just an ordinary Christian. Man, if I really love, you know, I'm gonna be a missionary. I mean, that, 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 those people are close to God. Sometimes we have this stratification of spirituality. Brother and sister, we need those who are gonna go, who are gonna be the traditional missionaries. We also need ordinary, everyday believers going through their jobs and bearing their glory right where they're at. And if you're being obedient to go to the nations, praise God. If you're being obedient as a teacher, engineer, stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, but you're living for the glory of God, that's exactly where you need to be. Do not diminish the mission field that God has given you. Just bear his glory. Sometimes we, we go because, you know what, it just frankly sounds fun. I've always wanted to travel the world. And I can do it for a cause. I like learning languages. I like eating different foods. I heard this missionary who does rock climbing as his platform to get in. I like rock climbing, so I'm going to do that. I like a lot of these things, so I, I'll go. And you go because it sounds like an adventure. Make no mistake that what begins as an adventure, and if that's your zeal, when the forces of darkness begin resisting you, you will falter quickly. It is only doxology, the glory of God that anchors us. Maybe we go because we want to make the world a better place. Again, not a bad thing. But if it is done because of your own desires instead of the glory of God, you will not last. And you will not accomplish what we are called to do. So number one, to be a church unleashed is not to go for any of these things primarily, but to go for his glory. That's got to be our driving heartbeat. Number two. So first one, doxology. Number two, death. Death. How can we be a church unleashed? Doxology. And number two, death. Death to this world. Death to your love of self and stuff. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. If we're going to be a church unleashed for the glory of God, and that's Paul's desire, one of his instructions is, let go of your riches. The scripture talks a lot about our riches. Jesus even said how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because this world is appealing. As for the rich in this present age, materially rich, relationally rich, understand what you've been given. And don't be haughty. Have a proper assessment of your own importance and think that, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I shouldn't have to do that. No, humble yourself who, like Jesus, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and came into this world and lowered himself and forsook his riches and his rightful place of glory so that what? He could bear the glory among a bunch of sinners. Glory bearing requires letting go of riches and letting go of your reputation. But most of us are not willing to do that. Stop loving your money and your stuff. He says, those who set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. 
I do think that one of the reasons the church is leashed, instead of being unleashed, the church is leashed because we love this world. We love our retirement package. We love our job. We love our homes. We love the convenience of the drive-thru. We love it that when we turn on the switch, we have electricity. Where in many places in the world you don't have that. And I'm, I remember growing up in, for, in East Africa, and there were weeks without electricity, and sometimes days on days without water. To go down to the stream and get a bucket and wash your clothes in it was not fun. It was inconvenient. And I was thankful when the water came back on and the electricity came back on. It's not an easy road to walk. Those are minor inconveniences compared to many other things. The church, the people of God are oftentimes leashed because we love this world and we measure our obedience to see if it is too costly. We measure our obedience so that it's not too extreme. I thank God that Jesus did not consider his own blood so costly as to stay in heaven. Because that's who we're called to follow. So to be a church unleashed requires doxology and it requires death, death to self. And then number three, it requires determination. This does not just happen. This requires effort and intentionality. It requires determination. Doxology, death, and determination. If we're going to be a church unleashed, the determination to be rich in good works. Verse 17 to 19. Do not put your hope on riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Everything. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Do you hear that? We think truly life is holding on to our riches in this world. God says taking hold of that which is truly life is letting go of this world and its riches. Now don't misunderstand me. God is not calling you to some sort of angsty monasticism or asceticism whereby we demonstrate our godliness by how much we hate life and all of God's gifts. Matter of fact, Scripture here says He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He wants you to enjoy His good gifts, but in their right measure and in their right place. Sacrifice is hard, but when sacrifice is done in worship, in response to doxology, it produces joy. Do good, and the greatest good is bearing God's glory to the nations, to your workplace, to your family. Be generous. Let go and give of your money and your stuff generously. You know, you can give money and not be generous. But you can't be generous and not give money. This is such a taboo topic in terms of the church, and partially because, unfortunately, some have abused this instruction of the Scriptures. But the fact is, is that one of the ways in which we are primarily generous is, yes, stewarding our monies in order to facilitate the building of the kingdom of God so that the glory of Christ might be known. So are you giving of your monies? Well, I'm a college student. 
Do your parents give you money to go to McDonald's? Get a dollar burger and give the rest. Is that too radical? I'm on fixed income. I'm not saying, not saying that you have to give everything per se, and yet Scripture says the widow gave two mites, didn't she? She gave all she had. So maybe, in essence, our hearts should reflect a totality of giving. If you wait until you can afford to be generous, you will never be generous. Be ready to share. Don't wait for the pastor to preach on it. Be leaning in and be ready to share. Who can I share the glory of God with? Who can I share his love with? Who can I share my stuff with in order that Christ might be known? And I can take hold of that, which is truly life. The more that you hold on to this world, the more your joy will dwindle. The more you let go of this world and take hold of Jesus. Though I have nothing, Jesus is enough. And it inflames our joy. So live for what truly matters, storing up treasure in heaven, taking hold of that which is truly life. May we be a church unshackled from this world and unleashed to bear the glory of God, but it will require doxology, death, and it will take determination. Because getting into some of these places to share the richness of what we have will be costly. We can get you into some of these nations. We just may not be able to get you back out. But are you okay with that? Are you willing to give all for him who gave all for you? Do you believe and will you have faith that the world and the life to come is more satisfying than holding on to the passing dust of this world. We're glory bearers, brothers and sisters. So let's bear his glory. Let's bear it and let's commit to do so.